Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So uh, yesterday evening we <coughs> went through the various techniques and reminded ourselves that uh, there's no, nothing mystical about these techniques. They're just skillful means. That's how they're referred to, upaya, skillful means to uh, bring ourselves into uh, the present moment. <coughs> And uh, just like all skills, you've got to work at them. And slowly they work for you, is the point, isn't it? They start working for you, slowing down, uh, getting in the, in the habit of just noting. Yeah. <clears throat> These two especially are really quite powerful in terms of centering that attention on what it is you're actually experiencing at this present moment. So tonight we can uh, have a look at these hindrances. That's the, the Buddha's word for them. Uh, they're more hindrances in the sense of stopping us from concentrating. The concentration, they drag us away from the moment because um, that's what they do, that's their job. Their job is to keep us occupied on something else. Uh, but when we're doing vipassana as such, then we can see them really as um, ways to get to know ourselves. And it's often the case that uh, when we begin to meditate, we get in touch with emotions that um, we might not have fully accepted about ourselves before. You know, often our family history has forbidden us to feel things, you know. crying, being angry, being jealous, all these things in your family history, depending on the situation there, have taught you to sort of push things away, not to really look at them. And, but unfortunately, of course, they remain at that subliminal level and affect our actions. You know, it puts a, puts a pressure on what we're doing. So, for instance, in jealousy, if we're jealous of somebody, but there's a, a, and we've never looked at it and we've pushed it away and we felt this sort of subliminal guilt about that. We might be overpraising. We compensate for it. All these things, I think, were very well understood by Freud, actually. So I've captured all that very, very well. So <clears throat> one of the things about our meditation is really to open up to ourselves and to receive whatever it is, uh, whatever we have been suppressing. Often when you come to um, Eastern teachers, in fact I've just received an email, um, if you ever work with Eastern teachers, they, they tend to push effort and concentration. And uh, this often means that the, the meditator ends up suppressing stuff. In this particular email that I've just received, the instructions from the Burmese teacher was, if, if an emotion comes, 
you note it, like anger or happiness, and, and then you immediately go back to the breath. And uh, the aim of that really is to center the whole attention <coughs> on the three characteristics, but especially the, the idea of impermanence. And in this way a person can be, yeah. so we say, pushed towards uh, some sort of deep insight. But it's at the expense, really, of not purifying the heart. And in the Buddha's teaching, the purification of the heart has to go hand in hand with insight. You can't leapfrog into, <laughs> into liberation. There has to be a complete clearance of the heart. We say the path is sila samadhi panya. So sila is, is, your, is your conduct, is, is your behavior. And this, um, this manifests your attitude, this manifests your virtue or lack of it. The samadhi is the training of the mind to be still, which is just part and parcel of the vipassana process. And the panya is the insight which liberates. So <clears throat> whether we like it or not, uh, you know, we have to go uh, to hell before we get to heaven. It's just, <laughs> it's just one of those things. There has to be a process of purification. And what we discover is that the only way to purify the heart is to let it speak, is to let it manifest its feelings. And that's painful for us. We don't like doing that. It's hard to be with, you know, depression, anger, the whole gamut of human suffering, which everybody has to some degree or other, I think. So when the Buddha um, delineated these uh, emotional, uh, attitudinal states, uh, he just called them the, the, the hindrances. And the first one, uh, not surprisingly, at all those things to do with desire. And um, looking at the process of desire, we find that when something comes up that we like, that we want, you see, when we like it, we want it. Very simple, isn't it? You like it, so you want it. You see that in, early, in little children, don't you? As soon as they see something like a toy, they want it. It's quite natural, isn't it? So that, that never leaves us, the wanting because, you know, liking something. Now why do we do that? It's because when we get what we want, we're happy. It makes us feel happy. It uh, gives us a certain gratification. And what happens is then that there's an underlying um, belief, you see, that if only you can get what you want, you'll always be happy. Uh, and, and you're into the great consumerist society and of course adverts play on that to the nth degree don't they and they stick desires together so you always get uh, you always get these beautiful men and women standing next to the car you want <laughs> the suggestion of erotic and romantic happiness which goes with a jaguar so these uh, these desires that we have are not just simple, you know, I want or something. They're, they're part of a root um, uh, theology. They're, they're, they're part of a, of a way that we look at life. It's, it's our relationship to our lives. Happiness, for heaven's sake. I mean, what, what do you want if it's not happiness? 
You know, if you ask somebody, what do you want to be? They want to be happy. <laughs> then they'll define that. You know, good job, nice relationship, etc., etc. A big list of things. But basically, everybody wants to be happy. And uh, the mistake, the great mistake, is to believe that the world, the sensual world, which is all we experience, is what can deliver that happiness. As far as the world exists out there, is in a sense irrelevant. It's how we experience it which is relevant, and it comes to our senses. Therefore, we live in a sensual world, from you know, from the inner point of view. And when the senses deliver uh, those very pleasant feelings, pleasant states of mind, then uh, we're happy. And the confusion, of course, lies in the fact. That happiness is an emotional state. So therefore we're always chasing the next emotional state, the next high. And in our society that's become a disease, hasn't it? It leads to compulsive action, addiction. Uh, the whole of life is about what are you going to do this Saturday? Where are you going to do this Saturday? Where are you going to go for your holiday? <laughs> Have you seen this film? Have you read that book? It's like always... It's always, what's the next thing which is going to bring me this little high? And the downside of that, of course, is when there isn't one. So because we, because we like living on these little highs, on these, you know, like, what's the next thing to be done? And they're not there. There's that disappointment. There's a, a sense of loss, a grief. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Worse than that, because of the inbuilt obsolescence of these pleasures, the fact that they, they can't maintain that same buzz that you got the first time, um, they lead to an easy boredom. There was, um, I read this article where this uh, woman described the first, um, the first go at crack, as she called it, riding the dragon. And then she said, after that, you're always chasing that primary experience, but you never get it. <laughs> and that's the problem with addiction. You're always trying to get the primary wow experience you had. And of course, when it comes to things like drugs and whatnot, the body becomes immune to it. It becomes hardened to it. It, it finds a, um, a way of absorbing the shock. Hmm? And um, when a person comes off drugs, they often, they sometimes forget how resistant the body was to the drug they were taking. And often when they slip back into the old habit for one reason or another, they could be rejoicing. They kill themselves. They, they overdose. Now in a little way, in a less dramatic way, that's what we're doing all the time. All the time we're uh, seeking happiness in sensual pleasure and we're getting to a point where we're bored. So boredom says, seek, seek more pleasure. Variety is the spice of life. Off you go. <laughs> and there's incessant search. We don't want to feel boredom. Boredom is not a very pleasant state to be in.
And if it gets too much, if it gets really bored, you lose your, the purpose of living. It moves towards despair. It can be on a professional level, you know. Like if, you, if, if your work has always been very interesting and it disappears, what are you left with? You're left with this hole, aren't you? Well, what are you going to do now? Because you can't gain that same intensity of experience, life becomes boring, becomes empty, meaningless. And it's only because we've defined life as being something which is exciting, something which is always going to deliver this, this very pleasant state. So there's a real um, heavy consequences from indulgence. Oh, it's, uh, it's the... Um, Indulgence here, by the way, is referring to all types of attachments. So we're not just talking about, you know, missing your tea in the morning. I mean, that's pretty disastrous. But <laughs> we're talking about heavy stuff like, you know, like the loss of your job if, if you enjoyed your work, the loss of a relationship, the death of, a, of somebody close. All these are very extraordinarily painful uh, experiences for us. And the pain is the measure of the attachment. Pain is the measure of the attachment. So when somebody dies, for instance, there's this, you know, we call it grief, but it's like a huge sore, isn't it, in your heart. It's extraordinarily painful and a real lack. And, and, and we like to think of it as our love. You know, this is how much I, I really love the person. I miss them so much. That's the confusion, you see, because we've confused love with this attachment. But the grief is the measure of attachment. And if we don't see that, then the grief becomes chronic. Because every time the grief begins to lessen, you think you're losing the love of the person. So you've got to re-grieve to make sure you're, <laughs> you're still really loving them. And it's only when you begin to realise that grief, in this sense, grief of loss, is actually a measure of attachment that you, let, you can let it go. And you begin to realise that love is something of a higher nature. Love allows things to be. If it was the time for the person to, to die, then one is easy with it. You, know, you, don't, you don't indulge in the grief. You see it as something which is unwholesome. It's a product of that attachment. At a lesser level, you see, objects that we own. You know, like, you know, it could be something quite costly, like a car, or a computer, or a laptop, or a, a not something that's not so costly, like your, your um, mobile. You know, somebody feeds it. You know, you feel angry about it. You know, bloody thief. <laughs> and there might be some grief. And you, and you go around saying... You know, do you know what? Somebody stole my phone, my mobile. It isn't your mobile anymore. It belongs to the thief. They're using it. <laughs> they're, the ones who, they're the ones who have the mobile. But there's still this figment in the imagination that it's still mine. Which is a social construct, isn't it? It's sort of an, a legal arrangement that we've come with each other that if I say this is mine, it belongs to me. And there's somehow... Uh, a feeling that um, 
uh, it belongs to me in a deep, you know, like it, it's attached to me in, in, in a sort of visceral, emotional way. Whereas when we, when we look at something like a clock or something or a, or a mobile, actually all you can do with objects is use them. To own them is, is, a, is a painful thing. Emotionally, I mean. We might legally own it, fine, that's not a problem. You know? I mean, if you own something which you actually want to get rid of and you get compensation if somebody does thieve it, <laughs> you leave it in obvious places. <laughs> that's not a problem. put your your um, four and a half year old computer which is which is guaranteed for five years you know and leave it out in the park somewhere <laughs> oh fiddle fiddle these poor companies so <clears throat> one of the first things is to uh, begin to see that psychology within ourselves that's why I'm so intent on this business of eating and, and you know, when we drink something. Because right there and right there we can see it, you see, right there. I mean, supposing tomorrow, for instance, when it came to five o'clock, you said to yourself, well, I won't have any tea. I won't even have the biscuit. I'll have a cup of cold water and I'll sit here and watch the pain. <laughs> and what we're watching is the attachment. Now, the great thing about these attachments is that once you stop indulging them, they actually do die away. There's a whole process there of deconditioning. And very, very quickly you become accustomed to a new order once you've set your heart to it. So here, for instance, you know, you've, you've come into a, a very strange sort of uh, regime. You know, you get up at 3.30, breakfast, lunch, sit here, walk crazy really when you think about it and if you describe it to a person who knows nothing about meditation they think well they must be a bit off must have gone off <laughs> <laughs> but I think you'll see that even within three or four days it's, you just get up, you just do it you just rehabituate it to something and really that's the trick when it comes to habits that we find are difficult for ourselves is to know that actually all you have to do is go through the pain of detoxing and replace it of course with something which is more wholesome because unfortunately we, you know we pass we have time we keep moving from one moment to the next so you've got to fill it up with something and, and if you can find something more skillful then than what you were doing, then of course that is going to have a psychological effect. It's going to create a certain contentment. And contentment is a big word in the spiritual world. Contentment is the mind without desire. The mind without desire. When we say desire here, remember, we're translating this one word, tanha. There is another word in Pali, chanda, which can be either wrong or right can be a good desire or a bad desire so that if we want to sit that's a good desire and we should we should reinforce it the desire that we're talking about in terms of what causes problems is the desire whereby we believe that something sensual something of this world this phenomenal world 
is going to deliver perfect happiness. So when we're eating, you see, we're trying to make that distinction. So we're not seeking happiness in food, but we find that when we eat food, a certain appreciative joy arises. And that's natural to that process. It's natural for the body to feel good when you feed it something. And it's natural for the mind to resonate that goodness. Even uh, at a level, shall we say, of um, just relationships, there's a case where the Buddha is asked. When people listen to your Dharma and they don't um, receive it, you know, they, they walk away from it, how do you feel? He says, fine, I don't feel, don't feel unhappy or anything. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, this understanding of karma. The person isn't ready to move that way. And it's no, it's no uh, skin off his nose, is it? If somebody doesn't, I mean, he's, the Buddha's all right. He's got his food and he's, he's under a tree and he's happy. <laughs> and he's happy. It's not as though his personal happiness is dependent on somebody believing or, or following his instructions or not. But... When somebody, but he says when somebody actually accepts the teaching and begins to train, he's filled with joy. And that's that sympathetic resonance. I think some people think that uh, when the Buddha was liberated, he sort of turned into this hardened blob. You know, so <laughs> he no longer related to the world. He sort of walked around in, as a sort of automaton, uh, you know, who spoke the Dharma and didn't have a, a sort of emotional life. But it's quite plain that he did. He was quite charismatic. And we talk about the four illimitables, which uh, we can go into more detail towards the end of the week. In a sense, all beautiful emotions, beautiful mental states are illimitable. But uh, the four of them, as it were, captures a, a great deal of them. Love, compassion, joy and peace. So it's not as though you know, we're trying to get rid of the joy of life. It's very important to grasp that because if we make that mistake, if we, if we make the mistake of thinking that it's the body which is the problem, if I didn't eat, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't get attached. Right? That's, that's the mistake of the self-mortifier, of the, of the great ascetic who, <laughs> you know, who looks like a, a famine victim. Well, they don't eat, they don't go any, anywhere near something that's lovely or beautiful. Uh, again, the Buddha, you see, when he is on arms round, he comes away, he's got his food, and, and he's with Ananda, his attendant. And he says to Ananda, let's go uh, to this shrine, to this beautiful shrine, and eat our food. Why, why does he want to go to the beautiful, why doesn't he eat just round there on the, on the side of the road, in the dust? Or find a dung heap? And be a real ascetic. <laughs> he doesn't. He wants to go somewhere beautiful. When he uh, he goes off to meditate by himself into the forest, you know, leaves leaves the crowds, and they say to him, "Why do you do that now that you're fully liberated?" And he says, "I do it for my own quiet abiding, and for the benefit of others, as a good example to others." But you notice it's the quiet abiding that comes first. He doesn't say, I do it for the benefit of others, oh, and for my own quiet abiding. He says, no, I do it for my own quiet abiding. So one can imagine that there were times when, you know, like just constant visitors. I mean, he was, he was, uh, 
of that caste, the Kshatriya class, the, um, the warrior caste, whereby he knew all these kings, he knew them as, as children. His father was um, a local ruler, subordinate to the local king, Kosala, king of um, Kosala, I think I'm right, doesn't sound right, but I think I am. <laughs> Pasenadi, who was a great supporter of the Buddha. And, and the other king, Bimbisara, who was down in Magadha, where, where now you get uh, Benares, Varanasi on the, on the Ganges there. So all that was another kingdom. And the Buddha moved around the whole area. Wherever he went, he knew these, he knew these uh, rulers. And uh, where he went, he would be offered, you know, he'd be offered great food sometimes. Even we, you know, uh, monks in the East, you know, if somebody has a, a birthday and wants to create great merit, <laughs> or, or a marriage or something like that, then they always feed the monks up very well. And you get, <laughs> and you get a few dishes. And of course then, if you're an ascetic, you don't want to, you don't want to really enjoy it, you see. So there becomes this, this negative uh, feeling about your life that this, this isn't to be enjoyed so it's really important for us to make that distinction very clear to ourselves that the pleasures of life the, the sensual pleasures and the pleasures of relationship of art even even the, the joys that come up in meditation are not the problem the problem is coming from a deeper part of ourselves this this consciousness this awareness which is misunderstanding and attaching to it as uh, a way of creating this internal happiness which we call an emotional state and thinking that that's it that's me so <clears throat> all these things that um, come up around pleasure are, are really quite important and um, a lot of this stuff that we get from the misbehaviour of youth and stuff is to do, I think anyway, with that frustration of really not finding anything which is, um, you know, truly engaging. So they're always being taught, even at, you know, you see, even at school when I was, when I was uh, leaving the profession in uh, FE, there was all this talk about making education more entertaining. It's painful, you see. The teacher then becomes a performer. You've got to perform. And, it, and, and, and the children expect to be entertained, always to be on this lovely high. So they forget, it's like it's completely forgotten that education, the word discipline, you know, is about work. It's about learning your timetables. I know they don't do that anymore. But <laughs> and it's, uh, and it, gives, it gives children the wrong idea of what life's about. And when they hit... You know, when they hit the reality of work, and, and, and for the most part, it's not, it's not the sort of work they had imagined themselves doing, you know, like fitting tyres onto cars. It's just boring. You know, there's, there's, there's not an acceptance of it. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of these things that we see in our society is, is to do with this consumerism. And if we look into ourselves, we'll see the same syndromes, the same psychological 
states that are arising because of that wrong understanding. So this is a real opportunity, you see, to engage with that and to keep letting go of desire. As when I say letting go, you're not pushing it away. But it, it means to allow it to arise and pass away. Right? You have to be very careful on that. Sometimes this noting technique is used to sort of back things out of the mind. <laughs> you know, like greed. Get out. You know, <laughs> you know give it a, get a poke in the eye. So be careful because aversion is very subtle, you see. Not wanting is very, very subtle sometimes. But it's not. The idea, of the, this phrase that you get in, in, uh, in, med- in you know, meditation circles, this letting go, letting go, is allowing something to arise and pass away. So this is an opportunity to do that. And the, the, um, the important thing is, is to sometimes wait until that desire has completely and utterly passed away. right? And then just taste that moment that comes after that. Where the mind just isn't, hasn't got that energy in it, hasn't got that um, uh, you know, slight turbulence in it, which, which makes it always move towards what it wants. You see, and and what we're experiencing there is contentment, and the distinction between gratification and contentment is is very, you know, very difficult. So every time we we uh, you know we um, indulge a desire, there's always a point of gratification. There's always a point of feeling, oh great, you know. But unfortunately, all it's done is is reinforce that cycle, is reinforce that habit and then we're off again seeking, seeking, searching. So when we're working with hindrances here, this is something you can take directly into, into, your, uh, into your daily life. You know, and it's about strengthening the will. The will that is called Dhamma Chaitana. It's the will for, uh, you know, spiritual practice, the will for spiritual um, development the will for spiritual development. And it has to be exercised, it has to grow. And you do it by the process of renunciation. So renunciation isn't this, you know, uh, self-accusation and self-mortification. It's allowing some desire to rise and pass away. So you're renouncing it in order to see how attached you are to it. And you keep letting that arise and pass away until there's no pain. And then the renunciation has done its job. And then one tries to re-engage with that in a more skillful way. So one exercise that I always set to people, and probably you've heard it from me before, is to, you know, get yourself a nice cup of tea, or if you prefer coffee, and a biscuit, and just sit in front of your TV when your favourite program's on, and don't turn it on. <laughs> Just watch the blank screen and feel the pain. <laughs> and that pain, you know, of letting go of Coronation Street and, the, and, and match of the day. Oh my God, it's too much. And <laughs> when it's just, just sitting there with that and knowing that it's on is, re- is a wonderful exercise. And if you do that every week until it's completely gone, you see, then you think, what the hell was that about? 
You know, what was I getting so upset about? A stupid program for. Years and years ago, I watched this program. It was uh, an Australian uh, series. Three, it was a storyline, three, um, uh, three episodes. And uh, it was about uh, these uh, young women who were, who were traveling in Spain and in Morocco. And um, there they got fiddled by these two rather handsome men to get into drugs. And they, went and they, and they didn't realize they were carriers. Uh, for these drugs and when they landed in Spain they were caught by the police and stuck in jail you see and the whole drama is about is about that process well of course I missed the third program and still in my mind I still get that question what happened what happened <laughs> and it's a total fantasy it's a, it's a total fantasy it didn't, it didn't happen <laughs> you know like <laughs> in somebody's head but every so often when I think about it I think oh, I wonder I wonder if that, <laughs> I must say it doesn't cause so much pain these days. So uh, really work on that and just, um, and you know, after you leave the course and take into daily life, just find something, one point of the day or one habit that you have, which you know you can do without, and just, just sit with the desire and let it fade away. And there are two things that when we do that, there's always two things happening. We're A, letting go of something which is unwholesome for us, but we're also growing in that will for the Dharma, the Dhamma Chaitana, which is your, um, which is your spiritual empowerment. It's your spiritual empowerment. And it's the same when you, know, you practice the meditation. So when it comes to doing a morning sitting and hopefully... Uh, uh, an evening sit sometime in the evening there are always a hundred thousand excuses a hundred thousand reasons very good reasons why you shouldn't be doing it <laughs> there's always something more important and it's really and it's sort of catching that the, the sort of negativity of um, of want of, of the desire of wanting to do something which is more pleasant you see it's not just it's not just that you don't want to sit it's is that you want to do something which is more exciting. There's something more capturing than, than just sitting here watching the, the painful emotions coming up all the time. <laughs> and it's, it's the ability to let go of that, you see, which is creating this, uh, this will. And will in uh, Buddhism is, 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 the, is that which is your power. Power means to be able to do something. You know, you're, you are like when you walk. There's a power. There's an ability to walk. We call it an ability, but it's a power. It's an ability. And so when we when we empower ourselves through these exercises, we're becoming stronger within ourselves. Hmm? And the strength grows. You see, the strength grows to let go. To let go. So that um, when you get to the when we get to this point where we're just going to approach the final liberation, uh, we should be as strong as the Buddha, you see. So remember when the Buddha um, had finally uh, had got this inkling of, of you know perhaps this was what was going to make the break, what was going to bring about liberation from suffering. Remember he'd been through a bit of despairing there when he gave up. Uh, the ascetic practices. So he was despairing. He didn't know what to do. And suddenly a memory of childhood comes and it sort of 
uh, inspires him and and on reflection he he says you know he thinks well this is it if this doesn't work then nothing will and he has enough of this chaitanya he has enough of this willpower mm? willpower isn't bad in itself it's what you put it towards yeah he has enough willpower to say I'm going to sit under this tree and I'm going to sit here and either I will make this insight I'll actually understand things and come to the end of suffering or I'll die now of course that wasn't tested because <laughs> he actually did make a break but it took him six hours he sat there for six hours that's what, they, that's what the scripture tells us and so when we when we go when we go when we use this renunciation when we actually practice renunciation it has this added quality of you know building up this inner strength within us and we see that in people we see that in in strong pe- you know in, in people whom we really admire uh, you know people like gandhi nelson mandela people like that um, uh, mother teresa now these these people have a, a deep inner power which comes from that from that place where uh, you know they've lost a lot of attachment to life. They don't care anymore about their lives. They're there for another purpose beyond themselves. I always remember this case where in uh, that dreadful time in Lebanon, <coughs> I can't remember, but you remember that all that stuff about the um, the camps and the shootings and the killings and all that. And it would seem that right in the two firing lines, which weren't that far apart as far as I remember, there was a school and it was full of um, children, but also handicapped children or children with um, disabilities, as we say these days. <laughs> and uh, nobody knew what to do. It was, a very, it was very strange from, my, you know, from what I could see that this school was stuck. They, nobody had the guts to go in and do anything and they didn't know what to do. It was in a firing line. And uh, they brought Mother Teresa to this point and um, what the, the clip of the film showed you was, there, was them explaining to her that there were all these children here and they didn't know what to do about it. They were stuck in these firing lines. And after explanation, uh, seemingly without second thought, she just walked over to the school and let all the kids out. <laughs> I mean, like nobody thought of that. <laughs> nobody thought, well, I'll just go over there and bring them all out. <laughs> Why? Because they're afraid of being shot, they're afraid of, of, of being in a firing line. But this, but this, uh, I believe, diminutive uh, little woman, uh, just this enormous strength of the power of, of her, of her spiritual practice. If she was shot, I don't think she'd have cared. So that's the sort of um, strength that comes to us when we begin to practice this renunciation. And uh, as a sort of uh, another way in which that that willpower of uh, of renunciation is expressed is through generosity. Because every time we're generous, we we give something away which we ourselves could have enjoyed for ourselves for the benefit of somebody else. I'm not here talking about social bargaining, you know, where at Christmas you give a... You give a piece of cheese and they send you a piece of cheese. <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, and uh, yes, I'll come and help you decorate, you know, with a, a sort of a, an underlying text which says, well, I'm going to do my gardening next week, so it's come on. <laughs> but that generosity where you actually give for the benefit of others completely, not expecting any return. I mean, that's what we try and practice here, isn't it? This is, this is the idea here that, you know, when, when, we, when we come here to do a retreat, everything is already received, is already paid for. What you're paying for is already here. So that when it comes uh, to making a donation, it's always done with, in the spirit of entirely for somebody else. So what we're doing is, is saying, well, look, this little bit of wealth that I have, I could have enjoyed this. You know, I, could have gone, I could have gone to the Costa del Sol and drank a bit of sangria. Say no. <laughs> and, and enjoy myself. But instead, I, I've sent it off to this, you know, to this charity for the benefit of somebody whom I don't even know. You know? So that's a, that's a letting go of desire, you see. That's your renunciation. Same with time. You know, just helping somebody out, helping somebody, uh, doing some charitable work, not for any other, not for any reason apart from uh, just helping. So that time you could have spent yourself, could be watching a decent film, or going out with a friend. Who knows what could have been, could have, how you know we might have enjoyed that time, but instead we've we've given it, and you know we might not be doing something we particularly like doing, might not be uh, might not be something that we particularly want to do. But we do it for the benefit of somebody else. And in that way, this self, which is always self-centered, you see, it's always looking after itself, understandably so, is slowly being undermined, slowly being undermined. So when we get to this doctrine of not-self, see, what does it mean, not-self, you see? Does it mean that, you know, that there's no personality, there's a sort of uh, a breakdown, a sort of schizophrenic... <laughs> A sort of, well, an amorphous blob. <laughs> you end up with no self, no personality, nothing. No, not at all. all. All the self, this self that the Buddha's talking about, is describing is the relationship we have to the, to the world, to this body. This is me, right? All we've got to recognize slowly is that it's not me, and then we have a different relationship to it. So every time I, every time I, I look at my wealth, my wealth, see, then it becomes painful. But if I look at it as wealth, then I can do something with it. I can do something for myself, something for others. And I can make a distinction towards myself between that which is selfish and that which is self-care. So there's a very, so going back to eating, there's a great difference between preparing ourselves a nice meal, <coughs> you know, which is with, with the attitude of self-caring, rather than, you know... Uh, getting in there and just eating for the sake of, of enjoying ourselves and, and, and uh, becoming a glutton. Now that's, that's the word you don't hear these days very much. <laughs> you know, with all this obesity about, it's a no-no word, isn't it? Nobody's a glutton. They're all suffering from obese. <laughs> they're, all, they're all just obese, you know. Nobody will actually say it. You know, you greedy <laughs> pig. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just... <laughs> I mean, it's not... <laughs> it's not quite done, you see. It's, it's not. It's not. It's not politically correct anymore to to call a spade a spade. There has to be an illness. See, not to say that some people uh, don't put weight on for, uh, you know, because of some metabolic reasons and whatnot. But most people, I mean, even you know, I, I was shocked myself. 
um, I found I had put on a half a stone. Came as a great shock, I can tell you. And uh, and then it got worse. I put on another. <laughs> so I thought, well, something's wrong here. But I put it down to age. See how easy it is to <laughs> how easy it is to be to be obese and, and self-forgiving and all that. You see. So um, <clears throat> this evening we've. You know, we've just looked at just one of these, <laughs> one of these hindrances. We'll be at it all week, I think. And just centering on this uh, business of desire because I think it's, um, I think it's very uh, crucial in our day and age, really. So tomorrow I'll, um, I'll do the sort of rest of them because they're not... Well, I won't hang about so much. <laughs> but just in... As a general sort of um, attitude, there are those states of mind which, is, which are agitated and they're caused by these sorts of desires, all the negative desires, you know, hatreds and angers and irritations, all that sort of stuff. Uh, there are things that cause agitation in the mind that uh, make it restless, anxiety, guilt, shame, all those sorts of things. And there's doubt, and we'll go into that a bit more uh, deeply, which, you know, which creates a sort of um, uh, a, dis- uh, sort of all a disturbance in the mind, doubt. It, makes, it makes, makes a person constantly think about it, think about things, and be worried, you see. So whenever we come across the mind being like that, Remember, you always come off the thought pattern. The narrative is irrelevant. In here it's irre- irrelevant. Out there it may be relevant. In other words, um, if I doubt whether this is the job I ought to take or not, out there it's relevant. Here it's not relevant. Because <laughs> here you can't do anything about it anyway. Because you're not supposed to be using your mobiles. You're not supposed to be on the phone. You're not supposed to be writing. So here it's irrelevant. That's the point. So by making all this ad- mental agitation irrelevant, and just keeping it to the side. We can go into the actual mental state that's driving these states, the attitude, the, the emotional state that's driving it, and we can begin to feel it and, and, and get, a, get a hang of it and see how it works. And the other one is, the other side is when, we, when the energy begins to uh, fall, and that, that's what we call dullness and lethargy. And over the next couple of days, I hope that uh, you know the business of sleep imbalance will have been sorted, and you'll be very clear to yourself that any sleepiness that comes to the day is, in fact, dullness and lethargy, and is not tiredness. You see. One can be quite strict about that. And there, of course, the attitude is simply to stay awake and to be with it, to feel it. You see, remember, it is an energy. It doesn't feel like an energy because it, it's a sort of collapse into nothingness. But something's dragging us down. Right? It's, it's a dullness, dull, heavy feeling. So <coughs> the, the attitude there is basically to stay awake as best one can. So that's why you open your eyes, you stand up. And if, if in a sitting, you know, it just becomes ridiculous and you just find yourself, you know, nodding and banging your head on the floor, then uh, go for a gentle walk. And none of this stuff do you fight. You're not trying to annihilate it. You're not trying to get rid of it. 
not trying to overcome it, you're not trying to beat it, you're not trying to be better than it. See? You're just trying to attend. Right? See them all as patients. <laughs> They're all little illnesses. And they just need attending to, that's all. And that's the quality of awareness, you see. Attention. Yeah? And you can flavour the attention with kindness. You can look upon these things uh, with compassion, you see. And that often softens the process, by the way. It undermines a negativity towards them by seeing that these are little illnesses, we have little diseases. And that's, I think, a very skillful way to look at it. <coughs> Questions? Any anything come up? Sounds as though I've perfectly described the problem of desire. <laughs> May my words be of assistance. May you be liberated sooner rather than later. Uh,